to the Paranorm Girl podcast. I am your host, Kristen. Despite what the skeptical of Bigfoot might think, there is evidence pointing to this creature's existence. Many only continue being skeptical simply out of ignorance. They refuse to look at the evidence, and until you know how much there is and are willing to consider it, it's as good as non-existent to you. Much like a detective on a criminal case, Sasquatch researchers follow this evidence. They collect and document it and continue to chase the trail. It's just a matter of time until they've cracked the case. And they are not wrong for trying. A phantom didn't leave the thousands of documented footprints. A figment of imagination doesn't make nesting sites or full-body casts with the imprint of a heel and, and Achilles tendon. This is what sets Bigfoot apart from most other cryptids. And this is what sets it apart from being some run-of-the-mill paranormal occurrence. It's deserving of scientific scrutiny because it leaves behind physical evidence. Think of any other phenomenon that you are aware of that does so. I would highly argue the case for UFOs and aliens, but that's another matter entirely. If you are really curious to know uh, the case that I made for them, go back and listen to season five. But other than that, there aren't any. Not to this extent. And this evidence is corroborating and profound. It all points to a physical creature who leaves it behind. And even though the footprint is one of the most important pieces of evidence that we have pointing to its existence, it ain't just footprints. There are other forms of physical evidence, such as hair samples, nesting sites, handprints, tree breakage out in remote areas of the forest at heights that it would be hard to imagine a random person being able to reach, let alone doing it out of sport and hope that one day it'll be happened upon and pondered for years to come by some clueless Sasquatch hunter. Evidence such as audio recordings of howls and whoops, photographs and video, folklore of old, encounter stories of today. And within these encounter stories, we see a pattern of behavior and events, the repeatability of the, them from case to case, evidence in itself. Now, not everyone who sees Bigfoot is out there looking for one. Many times these events just happen quickly. But for anyone who wishes to specifically watch out for them, we'll spend today's show making our way through the very long list of potential evidence, how to collect and document it, and what you might expect to experience should you find yourself in the presence of Sasquatch. Let's begin. Painted Rock 
located on the Thule River Indian Reservation in San Joaquin Valley, California, is a rock shelter adjacent to the Thule River that contains paintings said to represent the hairy man. These rock paintings, or pictographs, are estimated to be between 500 to 1,000 years old. Broadcast along ceilings and walls of this shelter are depictions of a coyote, frog, caterpillar, bear, birds, humans, and the hairy man, standing pronounced against the backdrop of its fellow painting inhabitants. He towers with arms outstretched, piercing eyes, and a very round, dome-shaped head, and some have suggested that is representative of a sagittal crest. Down from him, we can see a female of a similar type and a child of a similar type, a hairy man family. The hairy man also has what the Yakuts have identified as tears streaming down his face in support of their human creation story. And the story goes, the hairy man, after drawing people on the rock and breathing life into them, they came into being. But when approached by the hairy man, they were scared and ran away, making him very sad. All of the animals then drew themselves on the rock along with hairy man who drew himself crying. Aw. So here we have these three very large figures in this painting, clearly unique compared to the humans and the animals that surround them. They are huge. They have five fingers. They stand on two legs. The Thule River Indians have described their hairy man as a creature that was like a great big giant with long shaggy hair. Very interesting. All right, next, the potlatch gathering and celebration between tribes of the Pacific Northwest was and is used to celebrate and highlight important things in life. There are coming of age rituals, recognition of births, deaths, and weddings. There is gift giving, there is feasting, and then there are these dances featuring performers adorned with costumes and ceremonial masks depicting bakwas, the wild man of the woods. And the wild man's face has numerous depictions, uh, renditions, uh, but what is incredible about these masks, bakwas looks like an ape. And so does Zanukwa, his female counterpart, also included in ceremonial masks and on totem poles. Why did they create masks that looked similar to an animal that is very real, but they themselves would never have encountered? Unless it was in reference to something they had actually encountered. Carved before the 1800s, by natives along the Columbia River, somewhere near the Dolls, Oregon, is another example of ape-like features. And those skeptical of the carved stone heads that I'm referring to here uh, that were discovered that literally look like monkey heads, <laughs> they like to say, well, actually, these represent mountain sheep. And I would say... Well, that is very odd to depict a sheep looking like a monkey. I don't know. 
Just saying. Uh, so these artifacts, masks, and depictions are all really intriguing, but cannot be considered evidence alone. Alone, they are simply part of the lore. Sure is weird that so many had the same thing to say about it and depicted it the same way, but when taken into consideration, along with the rest of the evidence we'll be covering this episode, it speaks volumes and does seem to support the reality of something that people have been seeing for a very long time and continue to see today. Support for the Paranorm Girl podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, who has taken a step up from Balloween to bring his face the cleanest shave it's ever seen. We all know Halloween is about looking good. While you put hours into your costume, the least the man in your life can do is have a nice shave. So this season, no need to toil in trouble. Manscaped's all-new handyman is the best gift to get rid of his stubble. Featuring a compact design and next-gen skin-safe technology, the handyman was designed to give a smooth finish without the mess of a traditional shave. Get the sweetest treat this Halloween by going to manscaped.com and use code PNG for 20% off and free shipping. Men, it may be spooky season, but you don't want to haunt with the sight of your scraggly beard. The Handyman Skin Safe technology helps reduce nicks and cuts so you can feel confident that that close shave won't turn your bathroom into a scene from a horror movie. For wet or dry use, feel free to bring this thing anywhere and everywhere. The compact design makes this the perfect travel tool for on the go. And being able to shave up to three days growth without the mess of a wet shave is priceless. And for my squatches out there with a little more scruff to manage, Manscaped's Beard Hedger Pro Kit has everything that you need to tame that mane. And then give me a sample of it. I need it for evidence. No one's going to believe I gave a beard hedger to a Bigfoot. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code PNG at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code PNG. For a gift as sweet as candy, get the handyman from Manscaped. Eyewitness testimony. I personally consider the stories of encounters and sightings highly valuable. And I know that not everyone involved with Bigfoot does, but I do. Once again, evidence all by itself, no, but they are invaluable for corroborating this worldwide shared experience. Until a Bigfoot is captured, alive or dead, we look to folks' descriptions of what they are running into out there to get a sense of what we're dealing with. The stories can confirm audio recordings. Why, yes, they do make those sounds. They can confirm suspected hair samples. Yeah, the one I saw in the area had three-inch long black hair as well. And I think they're especially valuable for confirming that people are actually encountering something out there to begin with. 
I find it all too fascinating when I hear stories from people who were definitely not looking for one, either never gave it much thought to begin with or were skeptical of these creatures existing, who had themselves a chance encounter and then unknowingly describe what has already been described in other cases. Hmm. So to each their own as far as hierarchy of evidence, but I personally will always find firsthand accounts really important. All right, suspected Sasquatch hair. Samples have been collected and submitted for years. DNA testing and screenings of these samples has had some really interesting results. Unfortunately, it doesn't sound like we're there just yet. The hairs that are currently in the possession of researchers and labs today still need an authentic sample to do a, a match of it to be absolutely 100% conclusive. So next time you're out there and you see the big furry one, get close enough to pluck a sample from that boy's booty. We need that butt hair for science. <laughs> hair analysis by legitimate sources have been undertaken such as by Dr. Sterling Bunnell of the California Academy of Sciences and Ray Pinker, who was in charge of a, a big hair collection at the London Zoo back in the Bluff Creek heyday. Both men analyzed samples they had received and concluded they were not identifiable as anything matching known animals, but shared some interesting features with others in the primate order. Bob Titmus collected strands from broken trees while investigating in Northern California, some of which were sent to a biochemist in San Francisco who compared the protein structure and found them to be similar to humans and African apes. Titmus, based on his long experience as a taxidermist, felt confident ruling them out for humans. And there ain't no African apes in Northern California. Uh, the, the Sasquatch Genome Project, of course, specifically tested hair samples that they received. Any result that they reported containing partial human DNA and partial something else was balked at by skeptical scientists who suspected that though that was only due to contamination by collectors and screeners. Dr. Ketchum said that every precaution was taken and they performed good science. Ultimately, they did conclude that what they had on their hands was indeed Sasquatch hair, but I, I'm just not sure how that works. Um, if you don't have an undeniably Sasquatch sample uh, to compare it to, but whatever the case uh, the amount of samples that have been sent in where they came back as authentic hairs that were unidentifiable and could not be matched to any known mammal on Earth or it had non-human primate characteristics from areas where that just could not be the case, I find that insanely compelling. Suspected scat samples have also been collected and sent in for testing. To date, as far as I have read, most samples have been proven to belong to other known animals inhabiting the area, 
and no other sample has been conclusive enough to be that nail-in-the-coffin Sasquatch dookie. But add some rubber gloves to your bug-out bags. Uh, Just have them on hand. You never know. And it's better to uh, have them and not need them than to be getting Bigfoot dew under your fingernails. Okay? Bigfoot reportedly makes all sorts of vocal and mouth noises. Some analysts and experiencers even weighing in that what they are picking up is a language of sorts. Simply put, though, Sasquatch whoops, hollers, screams, whistles, clacks their teeth, and grunts to get their point across. Or as a warning if you're in their territory. Or to let others of their kind know they are nearby. Or as an echolocation type maneuver. And be prepared because these sounds are usually loud, unexpectedly loud, which should not be unexpected coming from an animal this large. Uh, Whatever the sound, whatever the reason, if you are out there and you hear a vocalization or whistle that is unfamiliar to you and cannot be attributed to any known animals in the area, you may perhaps be listening to the call of the Squatch. One of the most well-known recordings of these noises is something called the Sierra sounds. I listened to some of the Sierra sounds for the first time ever for this episode. I wanted to test my initial unbiased reaction to the sounds themselves before I dove into the details of it. And I do not know any other way to say this, but this thing, these sounds made me think of monsters. I do not believe in monsters, so I don't mean that in a literal sense, but if I were out in the middle of the woods and heard anything close to what I am hearing on these tapes, I would be petrified, dudes. I I would be involuntarily collecting my own scat samples. No gloves necessary. That being said, though, (laughs) if I get to go on a Sasquatch investigation before I die, I promise to bring extra pairs of pants. I will be fine. All right. So the Sierra sounds were captured in the 1970s by Ron Moorhead and Al Berry. Now, something interesting about Mr. Berry. He was a former officer in the Vietnam War. He held a master's in science. He was an investigative reporter for a Sacramento newspaper. He was said to be a man of great integrity and character. He sincerely cared about accuracy and just the facts. And he accompanied Ron Moorhead out to the location in the Sierra Mountains where these sounds were recorded in order to debunk what was being reported. Al was a skeptic who was convinced this was all the result of deception, even rummaging through other people's belongings that were in the group, looking for evidence of that deception. Al, who began a skeptic, never found any proof of fakery. Researchers from the University of Wyoming would hold a year-long evaluation of the Sierra Sounds and some pretty interesting conclusions came out of it. First off, it was found there had been no alteration to the tapes. 
They hadn't been pre-recorded, re-recorded, anything like that. They were original. It was also determined by the researchers that the origin of the sounds was primate. Dr. R. Lynn Curlin from University of Wyoming studied the growling and whistling that can be heard and found the frequencies to be beyond the capabilities of human vocalization. And one of the strangest but most intriguing things to come out of this evaluation was when cryptolinguist R. Scott Nelson determined there was more going on than just grunts and whistles. He had spent many years analyzing the human voice and accents and uh, languages, and he had over 35 years in the field. After evaluating the Sierra sounds, he detected a language was being spoken. Based on his expertise, he thought the Sasquatch language was being spoken twice as fast as any known language and would have to be slowed down in order to be transcribed, which he did using a variation of the English Reformed phonetic alphabet in order to create what he terms the Sasquatch phonetic alphabet. Allow me to demonstrate uh, some of his transcription of the Sierra sounds. Ramha Baru Kahahu Wamvahu Koho Kaha. Transcribed, not translated. The purpose of this, he says, is to standardize all future transcription of suspected Sasquatch language and to facilitate comparison of language articulations by future researchers. His alphabet is not meant to be an argument for the existence of Sasquatch, but used as a standalone tool for the language researcher and any Bigfoot researcher in the future, lucky enough to listen in on their own Sasquatch conversation. And you can read all about it in his write-up titled Sasquatch Phonetic Alphabet and Transcription Standard. Link below. Photos and videos, of course, are of incredible value as evidence. But the sharpest denial from the skeptical side is pointed towards photos and videos. The complaint you hear over and over again is oh, that the, the image is never clear enough. Or if it is clear enough, it, it could just be a guy uh, in a gorilla costume. And as frustrating as that is to hear, they are right. You're damned if you do, damned if you don't. But just consider the lasting impact that photos and videos thought to be genuine have had on the Bigfoot world. One of the most analyzed pieces of evidence that uh, the Sasquatch world has ever put forth is the Patterson-Gimlin film. How many scientists and researchers and experiencers have watched that film over the years looking for these small details and clues and analyzing it within an inch of its life. And the results of their examinations are really compelling. 
Grover Krantz did an excellent job exploring this clip. Based on the tracks that the creature in the film left, he knew the stride length, the footprint length, the foot width, and the distance from which it was filmed. And with that data and math, he was able to ascertain the creature's height, its body dimensions, its probable weight, its its exact course of travel, and even the speed at which it was filmed, which is important as this was highly debated and made the difference to at least one expert of biomechanics in human locomotion named D.W. Grieve, who studied the film four years after it was shot. His opinion was that if it had been shot at 24 frames per second, then yes, it could be a quickly walking man in a suit. However, if it was shot at 18 or less frames per second, it could not be human. It was shot at 18 frames per second, you heard? <laughs> and we will get into uh, Krantz's reasoning and math showing that to be the case in our PGF episode. And who can leave out the most distinguishing feature of this film's subject, her swinging pair of fur gloves? They were captured on film. What an interesting detail to add to such a very convincing costume at a time when the studios were making what you see in the original Planet of the Apes. That was their costuming capacity back then. But sure, Roger somehow figured it out. And then, just just for some spice, threw in a pair of knockers. God. So, while it may be frustrating for your photovisual evidence to be immediately discounted, you know, no one believes it's real, it's too blurry, so was the PGF. And it's still so very important to the study of Sasquatch. So much information was gleaned from it about this potential creature that so many claim to encounter. And if nothing else, think about how important it would be for your own personal benefit to have an image of what you know you saw that day. You know what you saw, and you have a photo to prove it. Most sightings and encounters go unphotographed. And I am not at all surprised by this. Uh, one, not everyone is out in the woods uh, specifically looking for or expecting to see Bigfoot, camera in hand, ready to capture this experience regularly reported to be ever so fleeting. Two, even if someone was specifically looking, how shocked do you think they would be to suddenly be faced with the giant shift in their reality if finally faced with one. And three, uh, imagine you're out in the jungles of the Congo and you come face to face with the biggest gorilla. Uh, average weight of a full-grown silverback is like 350, 370 pounds, so let's go with that. You are faced with a 370-pound silverback gorilla, and he's just standing his ground. He's not afraid of you. He's, he doesn't have to be. Maybe a little curious, but he's just 
staring at you. Do you think you might be a little frightened? More than a little? Okay. Double the weight, width, and height of that gorilla and tell me your camera's not shaking a little bit while you're trying to snap what best case scenario will be a very blurry photo. <laughs> Come on, go ahead. Tell me. Tell, tell me in my good ear. Um, yet another piece of evidence and one of the most tangible and documentable is the footprint. We can cast it. We can photograph it. We can even dig it up if we wanted to. But something is making them. We can find them and we can preserve them. Footprints can range in size, with some of the smallest cast around 7 to 8 inches, smaller ones often associated with young Sasquatch, and some very large tracks cast 25 inches and up. Generally, they average anywhere in the 14 to 19 inch range or thereabouts. By all superficial appearances, they look like ours. However, it has taken the eyeballs of experts in fields such as primate locomotion, uh, fingerprint analysis, and biology to see the parts of these prints that make them so special. They have specific traits distinct from human prints, along with traits suggesting real feet in motion. As to the shape, it may be long as heck, but the width is exceptionally wide, noticeably wide to the naked eye. Even very big human feet cannot compare to the width to length ratio of some of the largest squatch tracks cast and get only about a third wide as they are long. It's a planted surface uh, that could support the massive size of this hypothetical animal. Anything less and it doesn't make sense scientifically speaking. It correlates well um, to the estimated height and size of the animals that have been witnessed in reported encounters. Uh, the toe shape can be rather distinct. Grover Krantz describes uh, some variations he observed based on hundreds of recorded footprints, stating first and foremost that in general, the toes in these casts are more equal to each other in size and in line with each other, almost straight across compared to the curved or slanted human toe setup. But observed two other variations, including the first toe being slightly larger, with the rest being nearly equal to each other, or the first toe being substantially larger, but still not at the ratio of humans. So there can be some variation in a majority of these footprints that we find and cast, but compared to humans, it's quite distinct. Oftentimes, prints suspected to be genuine are not 100% uniform in a single track way, supporting the idea that these prints are being made with a foot in motion, a living and flexible foot. This is a detail you want to find. 
This can be seen uh, when we see only the ball imprint going up in, on, in inclines or a stabilizing heel imprint when the track goes down an incline, toes showing malleability around obstructions such as pebbles and twigs or like a gripping of the mud as the toe owner moved forward. Uh, some prints might even contain a slight hint of toenail and uh, a favorite detail of mine of a living squatch foot in motion, the mid-tarsal break. So I mentioned this last episode how the human foot does not work this way while many ape feet do. These prints are from feet that are flexing from the middle of the foot. Human feet flex closer to the toes and we create imprints in the sand that suggest that we do. If we keep in mind in our own prints, as the ball portion of your foot begins to push away, propelling you forward, there may be a little mound of pushed up dirt left behind, truly showcasing your foot's ball boundary and that flex point. Sasquatch, purportedly, and other ape species do something similar except in the middle between the traditional front of the foot and the heel. The mid-tarsal break is due to a pair of joints in the middle of the foot that is has less mobility in human feet due to our arch. Our arch is very taut. <laughs> it took me a while to understand this visual and why it's so incredible. Once I got it, I was like, oh, duh. Don't you guys find this such a a strange detail to add by a hoaxer who must be incredibly familiar with how ape feet work. Hmm. Dermal ridges are another interesting detail to include should someone be attempting to hoax them a set of prints. Dermal ridges can be clearly seen in numerous cases and their plaster casts. Heck, they, they can be seen in the heel of the Skookum body cast. Some of Freeman's casts from 82 show both dermal ridges and sweat pores. Sweat pores. And over spans of time, the same track-making individual can be seen in separate locations due to such distinctive features as toe and foot shape, length and width, skin ridge detail, and friction spots that would be expected in a living foot in motion of a bipedal hominid. If these prints are not being made by some undiscovered hominid out in the forest, then the only other option is they have all been hoaxed, all of them. Just put yourself inside of that headspace for a second. There have to be hundreds, maybe thousands, to account for all of the prints found across the country. Many of them have to be as familiar with foot anatomy as an anatomy expert or a podiatrist. They must be diligent to add those details to convince even scientists these are real. They must be careful to never get caught or reveal that it was them all along. They must be committed enough to travel to incredibly remote areas to plant them 
with no promise that they will ever be discovered, and often in the middle of the night, as many tracks are discovered fresh on any given following morning. This is some mass dedication. And not saying that this is so unlikely that it cannot be the case. I know for a fact, literal groups of folks would get together to create crop circles, priding themselves on getting the details just right. And sometimes they did indeed get close enough to uh, convince the scientists studying them. But the glaring difference here for me is that the circle makers planted their artwork where it was sure to be found. They often wanted it found. And if you don't know much about crop circles or their makers, I'll, I'll tell you, it was a far less nefarious act than uh, you would think. A lot of the, the makers were inspired by something to do them. Um, my question would be, if you are hoaxing Bigfoot tracks, would you choose to create them in areas that may very well be obliterated by weather, uh, other animals, covered up by, by wind, you know, whatever, before another person ever happened upon them? What is your goal in making them if you never took credit? Unless you are a Bigfooter yourself, and I am certain that has been the case before. If that is true for somebody out there right now, I can't tell you to stop, but, you know, please stop. The harm done to folks out there genuinely trying to find this thing is overwhelming. Now, if you are looking for evidence of Sasquatch territory, perhaps recent dwelling or hunting areas, there are a few direct purposeful signs thought to be left behind that could point you in the right direction. These might be important things to note in your field notes, which we'll talk about briefly in a moment. Um, are these definitely 100% left behind by Sasquatch? Not necessarily, but they have been seen before more than a few times. They are very odd things to find out in a natural wild environment because they point to a level of intellect we wouldn't expect with the average animal. And it is suspected that they are Sasquatch caused. The evidence to look for includes rock stacking. Sasquatch has been witnessed digging through rocks to pluck out dormant rodents who hide beneath them for an easy snack. They were then witnessed stacking each rock that they picked up and set aside. It's a strange one, but if you happen upon a quarry-type scenario, a rock bed out in the middle of the forest that is remote, and you see an abandoned game of rock Jenga, there may be a squatch in the area. Branch and tree structures. This is often seen and at times hard to explain as large branches simply falling just perfectly enough to land in this structural, abodal, uh, teepee type formation. I don't know. I, I, I see how that is possible. Of course I do. But I spent my entire childhood and teen years in the forests of Washington State and Montana, and I don't recall ever seeing 
structures of branches and fallen trees quite like this. Um, maybe I just wasn't paying attention. <laughs> I don't know. But if you notice some out there, there may be a squatch in the area. Branches stuck in the ground. This was a new one that I noticed over on Miss Janice Carter's YouTube channel. Her and her family uh, call them ground sticks. And a fella in one of her videos is video recording, uh, you know, documenting them as they are walking through the woods. And he said something interesting that I would love a little more elaboration on. He said these were almost like the Sasquatch written language, like they are communicating something by doing this. This is a subtle sign, you know, would be hard to uh, or easy to miss. But all it is is sticks and branches wedged into the ground unnaturally. Like, they obviously look manually shoved in there. If you happen upon a forest floor littered unnaturally with ground sticks, there may be a squatch in the area. Tree or branch breakage. Now, I find this sign really interesting. Um, there are a few meanings behind it, uh, such as... Uh, they're done to mark a territory, uh, to mark pa a path or good hunting grounds. It could be used as a calling card for potential mates or as a general form of communication between individuals either amongst themselves or between them and humans. Look for thick branches or even small trees to not just be broken, but twisted at their break and very high up. This is what you are looking for. If you come across it, there may be a squatch in the area. One final piece of evidence that you might stumble across is the nesting site. While some people uh, think that this creature holes up in caves to sleep, others believe they actually make nests, and many have been discovered. What often sets these nests apart from other animals' possible bedding sites is purposeful design. Researchers have looked to habits and behaviors of gorillas to give them hints as to what they might look for in a suspected Sasquatch area. And gorillas, along with other apes like chimps and orangutans, make nests. If you are of the opinion that Sasquatch is a hominid ape, then it would go that they might behave like ones we are familiar with. In apes, nest building is a habitual behavior that their young learn from watching parents do it. It is considered tool use behavior. They are often elaborate with interlaced branches and plants and a bottom layer for comfort, warmth, and protection. And suspected Sasquatch nests do not differ uh, too far off. The, that difference being theirs are going to be quite large. Now, bears will also create nests. Oftentimes, they will find areas suitable for a den, but outside of that, they make nests made with branches and twigs and trees and also on the ground. And at first glance, it could possibly look similar to a Bigfoot bed. But there are some key differences to look for to help you rule that out. You want to look for shredded trees near the nest or in the vicinity. 
bears will shred the bark of trees for the bedding material and to mark their territory. So you may find a lot of those. Uh, you may also find bear hair within the nest. And that's an important indicator because it's uh, a much rarer occurrence to find as much suspected Sasquatch hair. So if there's visibly hair in there and there, there's a lot of it, still collect it uh, to be analyzed, but look for other signs of bear presence. Another big sign of a bear's nest they will poop near it. They often do this. So uh, those are some bear nest indicators. Indications, it might be a Bigfoot nest, interwoven, interlaced branches, twigs, and parts of trees. Broken off boughs can sometimes be found stuck into the ground along the outside of the nest. Uh, keep an eye out for anything that... Uh, like that and and look to see that there are no teeth or claw marks on them which might clue you into something without thumbs that might have broken them off to uh, bring them to the site. Uh, fern fronds and other plant materials can be mixed in there as well as a surrounding barrier of living plants pulled in as part of the outer edge of the nest creating a bowl type shape. Layers of moss and dead leaves and small twigs have been found in the center, serving as a mattress or cushion against the ground. So do your due diligence if ever faced with deciphering between a bear or Bigfoot nest, as they both are going to be found in a lot of the same areas due to access to similar diet and water sources. If you would like to learn more about this kind of evidence, I would recommend checking out the Olympic Project's involvement in investigating what is known as the nest site that was discovered out on the Olympic Peninsula. There was a series of nests spotted uh, and discovered by a, a timber surveyor who just happened upon them, and the Olympic Project began a multi-year investigation of these nests. So this was your list of evidence that can be collected captured, documented. And if you're saying, but Kristen, wait, what about tree knocking and getting pegged by rocks? I got you. Following is a list of signs and yes, evidence if you can capture it, but signs that you are within rock's throw of a Sasquatch. Along with the vocalizations they might make, you may also hear tree knocking. It is very loud, very distinct, very purposeful. Some folks have found that they can communicate to a certain extent by imitating the knocks that they hear and receiving knocks in reply. Some folks have found that there is a specific mathematical order to it, theorizing that perhaps certain numbers of knocks mean something. Tree knocking is the generally accepted term for this type of interaction or sign of their presence. Could also be rock clacking or banging. Speaking of rocks, watch your back. If you are out in the middle of nowhere and to your knowledge, there is no other human being nearby and you watch a rock as it whizzes by your face, either investigate further for Sasquatch or leave the area. 
in tons of past experiences with rock throwing, it has been seen as a warning. They often miss its thought on purpose, though. Leave. That's a pretty clear communication to me. And the size of things thrown have varied from small boulders, logs, branches, twigs, pebbles, you name it. If an unseen creature with fingers to grasp, strength to throw, and enough intelligence to aim, that's possibly who's tossing the rocks. What an ape-like behavior, too, right? Let's just hope that that is not how you get your scat sample. Tree peeking is also regularly reported. The woods are this creature's kingdom. They camouflage themselves within it very well. Sometimes that camouflage is just hiding behind a tree and peeking around it to catch a glimpse of the odd-looking furless creature traipsing through their home. Keep an eye out your periphery for the sudden movement. Eye shine is reported often. Just be aware a majority of glowing eyes that you see in the dark belong to nocturnal mammals. Big ones, small ones, even some nocturnal birds have eyes that glow in the dark. It's a sign that can uh, easily freak you out and as easily be mistaken. Just look for the height at which it originates or like a space between the eyes. And, and maybe if the eye's owner suddenly, uh, I don't know, whistles at you, it could be a good indication it's Bigfoot. And a foul odor and the feeling of being watched does not necessarily mean one is nearby. There's potentially a lot of death and decay happening out in the woods. Uh, there are a lot of predators who may want to stalk you a little bit out in the woods. These signs by themselves are not enough to prove to you that it's a lurking Sasquatch. But if you are uh, sensing a, intensely staring eyes on you and, and you suddenly smell the stench of just overwhelming B.O. and feces and death and, and, and it's followed up with pebbles zinging by and some creepy eye shine and a little wamvahoo kaha kahoo. I mean, probably. <laughs> it's, it's probably Bigfoot. <laughs> All right. Uh, for our final segment before we close it out, let's learn a little bit about best practices and supplies that we need for the collecting of all of this evidence. If you are going on an expedition to find Mr. Foot, you are camping with a purpose, but you're camping nevertheless. You need to bring all of the expected survival gear for your luxurious stay out in the remote wilderness. Prepare for the cold, prepare for the heat, prepare to get wet for some reason. It happens. I was often told as a kid prepping for family camp trips, if I was considering whether or not to bring something, you'd rather be safe than sorry. So bring it. The 10 essentials is a list developed by mountaineers of items that you do not want to go on a trek without. They are navigation, either maps or compass. Ain't nobody want to read about you in the next 411 book. 
Sun protection, insulation or extra clothing, illumination, either headlamp or flashlights or both, first aid supplies, and they say within the first aid kit include a whistle or a signal mirror, a way to make fire, of course, fire starter, matches, lighter, you name it, a repair kit and tools, including a knife, nutrition as an extra food, hydration as an extra water, and emergency shelter, like a tarp, tent, or bivy sack. I don't know what a bivy sack is. My own recommendation uh, for must-haves, bug spray and bear spray. Shoot it downwind. Don't be a spicy snack. Okay. Now, in addition to your camping supplies, you need your squatching kit. The Finding Bigfoot book that I picked up has a very good list of what to bring. I will relay that to you with a, a couple of better options. They say to bring a camera, preferably one that takes both photos and video. Yes, agreed. Not only to capture a possible creature on film, but you can capture sounds that they make. You can uh, get reference photos and, and video of the location. You can take photos and video of your evidence that you capture. My suggestion to this is also bring a handheld recorder as well, specifically to capture those howls and whoops and knockings. They also recommend the following items for casting prints. Dental stone, hydrocal, or plaster of Paris. A bowl to mix it with water. A magnifying glass to closely examine and look for hairs. Tweezers to pluck the hairs out. Lots of plastic baggies. Latex gloves and a tape measure. This is all great, but I heard uh, Esteban Sarmiento speaking with Micah Hanks over on Sasquatch Tracks about evidence collection. He recommends collecting hairs in a paper envelope due to possible moisture. The paper is going to be better for moisture removal from the sample, whereas a plastic bag is going to retain moisture, and then you run the risk of spores having gotten in there, and, and then you'll have fungus, and that's no longer a viable sample. Use clean, dry tweezers or forceps and look very closely for any hairs with the bulb still attached. Way more DNA can be extracted from the hair root. Along with uh, the items to cast the print, bring a scale item for when you have to take the picture with the camera that you brought, remember, of the footprint. Make it something that is recognizable as far as size, like a tube of chapstick or a can of soup or whatever. It's just better for folks who are looking later for a, a quick size comparison. They also recommend binoculars and a field journal to document your evidence. Um, Dr. Sarmiento also had recommendations for collecting any scat that you may find. He recommends putting drinking alcohol in a jar, storing the scat inside, and placing it somewhere with as little light as possible. We can learn a lot about this animal from its poop, dudes. 
And since we have had no verifiable Sasquatch poop, it would be an incredibly important find. So collect it carefully, collect it correctly, wear the gloves, get that poop. So this is basically all one would need for a successful Bigfoot expedition. BFRO does suggest some other tools that you could bring that would just make it easier, you know, give you the advantage, like night vision goggles and thermal cameras, trail cameras, and and some other stuff. I do think trail cameras are an absolute must. You can't be everywhere at once, and this guy is elusive AF. And we, we can talk about, you know, whether Bigfoot is hearing the sound of the cameras, uh, thus evading them at every turn. But if he's out there, it's a matter of time before he's going to be forced to step into frame or is just caught off guard. Now, you've brought your field journal. What information do you include? How can you ensure that you cover your bases for later reference and chain of custody? Documenting the details of your squatching adventure are paramount, and you got to strive to get this one right. Think about obtaining waterproof paper and bring more than one pen, just in case. There is no such thing as including too many details in this, and you got to do your utmost best to jot your entries down in the moment rather than try to recall them later. For each entry, uh, the minimum that you want to include is the day, date, and time, the current weather conditions, the point of origin, route, or destination, uh, describe the terrain, name anyone who is with you, and then any other notes of relevance, such as a connected sample collected for this entry, which reminds me, tag each piece of your evidence. On the tag, you're going to include its description, when and where you found it, whether anyone else has touched it, and if there were any alterations at all to the sample. There's quite a bit to this process, and uh, there's even more than I am including today. I recommend a book called The Sasquatch Seeker's Field Guide if you would like a very thorough step-by-step guide through the process of evidence collection, you know, what comes after, and just a ton more reference material if you love this subject and can't get enough of it. Let's go ahead and wrap this one for now and do our final note. So just this year, Jane Goodall appeared on Jimmy Kimmel Live. When asked if she was open to the possibility of Bigfoot existing, she responded, well, there's so many stories. Jane Goodall, the scientist, the chimp expert, first person to observe chimps' ability for tool usage, very smart human being, highly respected authority, is open to the idea that Bigfoot could exist. And she went on to tell a story about being out in a remote area of Ecuador, surrounded by jungle and a few communities. And there were these hunters who would uh, hop around, moving from village to village. Jane requested her translator ask a question the next time that he saw them. The question was, have you seen a monkey 
without a tail. That was it. No elaboration. She was looking for chimps, I have to assume. Five of the hunters would respond in the affirmative. Yes, they did see monkeys without tails. They also walked on two legs and stood six feet high. I, too, would consider this eyewitness testimony with zero front-loading, all of them coming back, giving the same highly unexpected answer to be rather convincing. And I was thinking earlier, aside from a body, what it would take to make folks just more open to considering the possibility of Bigfoot. When I saw Jane Goodall's interview, I you know, heard what she said. I remembered something told to me when I was a kid that stuck with me. My teacher was trying to teach me something I just was not getting. And finally, she was just like, you know, I, I think you just need to hear it said in a different way. All it's going to take is for someone to tell you in the way that it makes sense to you then it'll click. And I know that sounds so stupid and lame and just like really simple, like, yeah, duh, but it, I don't know. It just struck me then, and, and I've always remembered it. Um, but I think the same goes for everyone else. All it can come down to for it to click for someone is one piece of evidence, one video, one story. For some folks, even a body will make no difference. But for others, it can be something as simple as an answer to a question you weren't expecting. To get to a place of just being open to the possibility. So if you are out there searching for the evidence, if you are telling your story, if you are taking the measurements and, and weighing the chances and the odds, I am telling you, you're doing everything right. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep going. If they are out there, a body will show up one day. It's a matter of time. But until then, you may be saying or doing it in a way that's making it click for someone else right now. And it did finally click for me years later. Turns out I was an alto all along. Oh, the songs I could have been singing in high school. <laughs> have faith, Bigfoot world. You're doing really cool, really good work. I was impressed going through all of this information. I hope I imparted something new to someone out there listening. Keep casting, keep collecting, and don't forget, get that poop. <laughs> Follow the show on the socials at ParanormGirlPod. Uh, I am still looking for some personal spooky tales and encounters to read on the live stream. Again, that is taking place Sunday, October 29th at 5 p.m. Pacific. Send your stories to paranormgirlpod at gmail.com and get featured on this year's Halloween special. Save the date. 
please uh, check out Ghost Tales by the Fireside with host Clem Dalloway. He's posting an extra spooky episode every week this month. And uh, word on the street is your ghost story quota still needs to be filled, my friends. No, but do check it out. Thank you for, uh, I heard from a few of the listeners from last week's episode that you did check it out and you liked it. I, I love that. Clem loves that. I appreciate you. Join me next week for an all new conversation. I love my chats. My guests do be keeping me on my very human toes. See y'all Tuesday. Stay safe, keep the nightlight on, and sleep with one eye open.